I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Leonardo da Vinci. When I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, if Leonardo's quality of work wasn't good, then we're all in trouble. Winston Churchill. I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Pancho Villa, Mexican revolutionary, said something maybe all of us would say. Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. <laughs> something memorable, please. Civil War General John Sedgwick at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse as his men hid from enemy rifle fire, said, What? Men dodging this way for single bullets? What will you do when they open fire along the whole line? I'm ashamed of you. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. His last words. Then there are some that are just kind of contrived, but probably as someone has said them, Don't worry. He's just hibernating. You hold it, I'll light the fuse. <laughs> These are the good kind of mushrooms. Some of you from the military, pull the pin and count to what? <laughs> or, well, we made it this far. And then my favorite is, duck, what duck? Famous last words. Well, Joshua's last words are certainly more profitable and more important and more serious. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Last week, we looked together at his last words in one sense to the leadership in chapter 23, and we saw his focus was on faithfulness, that God's faithfulness calls us to faithfulness. And if we're not faithful, then he will faithfully judge us. Now in chapter 24, and if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, I encourage you to turn there. In Joshua 24, he again addresses the leaders, but now it seems larger. It seems like he includes a majority of the nation gathering together for these final words from their great leader. And so chapter 24 opens like this. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. On the surface, that may not seem all that significant, but the, the name of the town of Shechem is significant because it was at Shechem in Genesis chapter 12 that God made his first promise to Abraham that he would give him the land. It was at Shechem when Jacob, having fled from his brother, now coming back into the land after serving with Laban for all those years, there he builds an altar to God at Shechem. In Joshua chapter 8, as we looked at many weeks ago, when Israel entered the land, they stood on Mount Gebel and Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim, and they recited the blessings and the cursings. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are at Shechem. And so this is an important location. And Joshua gathers all of the nation together at this location for his final address to them. Apparently the tabernacle is there, maybe not always there, but for this occasion it's there because they presented themselves before God in the presence 
of God. And Joshua begins to rehearse Israel's history. He's rehearsing the history of God's grace in their past and how they ought to respond to that grace. You know, we all need reminders of how gracious God has been to us. And we need those reminders then to challenge us to necessary responses to the grace of God. This whole section is about God. We're going to see Joshua speaking prophetically for God, but he's giving the words of God. And so for God, he's going to say, I, I, I. In fact, that word I occurs 18 times in these next verses. And there are several other first-person verbs that don't use the word I in front of it. It's about what God has done. And so he starts by pointing out that God graciously redeems his people. And so he goes back to the hallmark of redemption in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's the cross. But in the Old Testament, it's the Red Sea. It's the deliverance from Egypt. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. So he's backing up even beyond the Red Sea. Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah and the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served, key word in this passage, especially in verses 14 and following, they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. He talks about his calling of Abraham. Calling Abraham out of an idolatrous family. Abraham and his family on the other side of the Euphrates worshipped idols. So it wasn't that God looked down and said, wow, look at Abraham. He is really serving me. I'm going to call him. God looked down and said, I am going to choose Abraham in spite of who he is. And I'm going to call him and I am going to redeem him out of his idolatry. And so he brings Abraham to Canaan and promises there at Shechem the land. And he gives him Isaac. He gives him offspring. And then Isaac is given by God Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And so we have God choosing Jacob, the younger son, over Esau, the older son. And he chooses Jacob not because of who Jacob is. His very name means deceiver, trickster. He chooses him simply because God in grace is redeeming him. And then it's a little bit uh, unexpected because God had promised the land to Abraham and through Isaac to Jacob. But Jacob's not the one who gets a land. Esau gets the country of Seir. Jacob and his family go down into Egypt and eventually become slaves in Egypt. And I, God says, sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Now that was literally true for some of them. Some of them were little children when all that happened. They're now senior citizens in Israel. 
but collectively saying as a nation, you have seen at least with your memory what I did in Egypt. I rescued you. I sent Moses and Aaron. I brought the plagues. When you were up against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming to wipe you out, I stopped them and I wiped them out instead. God graciously redeems his people. Joshua continues and he says, God also graciously preserves his people. Verse 7, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. And with that brief statement, he summarizes 40 years. In fact, in Hebrew, it's only four words. He summarized the years of manna, the years of providing water, of food, of providing the quail, of clothes not wearing out, of God providing over and over to preserve his people there in that hostile environment. But it wasn't just the physical environment. There were also enemies in that environment. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. So when these enemies arose, I preserved you. And then he focuses in on one specific enemy. The story is found in Numbers 22 to 24. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor. You remember him. He's the guy with the talking donkey. He invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. God graciously preserves his people. Joshua continues, God graciously blesses his people. He gives his people far more than they have any right to expect, far more than they deserve. So Joshua says, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The hornet is not literal bees. What he's saying is, I sent this panic among the Canaanites, so they were terrified of you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. Yes, you fought, but you weren't the reason for the victory. I gave the victory. I blessed you with that victory. And more than that, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. You didn't plant, you didn't build, you didn't labor. I gave you all of that. And so he summarizes Israel's whole history to point toward the grace of God. God graciously blesses his people. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Verse 14 is actually one of those hinge verses. It it hinges back into what Joshua has been saying. Now, therefore, do this. But it hinges forward into what he's about to say. And what he's pointing out to them as he reflects on the grace of God, is that we need to stand in awe of the great grace of our great God. 
Fear doesn't mean cowering terror. Fear means that we hold and respect who God is, and because of that, we obey Him. We stand in awe of who He is and of His grace for us. We stand in awe of the fact that God redeems and preserves and blesses His people. He has in the past, and He still does. In fact, the book of Ephesians, while it's much shorter, has a lot of parallels with the book of Joshua. And some of it is paralleled in just what Joshua has been saying to these people. Because Paul writes in Ephesians 1, Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It says, God graciously redeemed us. It wasn't because of anything in us. He planned salvation before the world ever began, before we ever could have done anything good. He redeems his people. He also has delivered us. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and body and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We didn't deserve redemption. We didn't deserve God preserving us. But God, there's the difference, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. God's grace redeems and preserves his people. God's grace blesses his people. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, all of this is what he has done for you by grace. Chapter 2 verse 6 goes on. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that heavenly places phrase is supposed to cause us to think back to chapter 1. Where he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given us everything we need. He's blessed us. Not because of who we are, but because of his grace. So that, why did he do it? In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All for his glory. His grace given to us in redeeming us, in preserving us, in blessing us. And we should stand in awe of what God has done for us. The Our Daily Bread devotional several years ago had the story of a lowly shepherd in Scotland who came into favor with the king and the king elevated him up to not just a position of nobility but as an advisor to the king. But as the king observed him, he began to notice that very often, many evenings, this shepherd would go into a locked room and would stay there for a while. And then he would come out and the king was curious and he was a little suspicious. And so he confronted him and said, I want you to show me what's in this room. And the shepherd said, certainly, sire. And so he unlocked the door and there in the room was a simple stool, a shepherd's crook, 
and an old, tattered shepherd's tartan scarf. And the king said, what in the world do you do in here? The shepherd said, I I come into this room to remember what I was, just a lowly shepherd, and to reflect upon what the grace of the king has made me. And I would suggest to you and to me that, that we need to do that. We need to reflect on what we were. That's the opening of Ephesians 2. Lost, dead, separated from God. And what the grace of God has accomplished in us and what he has made us to be. Stand in awe of God's grace. And this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, I want you to understand that God's grace calls out to you. God's grace says, if you will admit that you are a sinner, if you will admit that you have a need of a Savior, if you will stop trying to earn your salvation and throw yourself on the mercy and grace of God and what he did through Jesus on the cross, he'll save you. I encourage you to do that this morning if you've never done that. So verses 14 and 15 are that hinge verses that take us out of the standing in awe of the great grace of our great God and point us toward another response. Look at what Joshua says. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your father, your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You'll notice again that word serve popping up over and over and over again. It's going to be used a number of times in this passage. As Joshua challenges them and he challenges us. To surrender your life because of the great grace of our great God. Last week in chapter 23, God's faithfulness called for our faithfulness. Now Joshua says, God's grace is my theme in this sermon. And his grace calls for you and me to surrender our lives. His grace calls for us to choose to follow God alone. The word serve pops up a lot in these verses. So does the name Yahweh, Lord, Jehovah. It occurs some uh, 16 times in this passage. He is the theme of these verses. So the awe that we have for the grace of God should drive us to serve him, to worship him, to follow him alone, to follow him in sincerity And to follow him in faithfulness. The idea of sincerity is that that we're fully there. We're not just going through the motions. We are fully engaged in serving, in worshiping, in following. The idea of faithfulness is that it's open and honest. We're not hypocrites. We're not putting on an act. But we really are following God alone. We're going to get rid of those rival gods of our past. He mentions Egypt. He mentions across the river. That would be Mesopotamia, Sumer. He mentions the God of Canaan. 
And it is significant that Joshua issues that challenge here at Shechem. Because in Genesis 35, Jacob issues the same challenge to his family. Get rid of the other gods. And they actually bury them there in Shechem. And now Joshua says to Israel, get rid of all those other gods. And when I read that, it kind of took me back at first. Really? After all that God has done for them, after all they've gone through in conquering the land, they still have other gods? And then I thought, yeah, but after all that God has done for me, how often do I allow other things to push him out of the central place, the top place that he ought to be? How often do you and I allow our pursuit of material things to overcome our following of God, to make that more important than following God? How often do we allow comfort and convenience to rule our lives instead of God? We can make family an idol. We can elevate family so much that we would do anything and everything for them and they become more important than our following of God. It can be a job. It can be a house. It can be a car. It can be a sports team. It can even be a country. I love our nation, but I do not serve our nation first and foremost. I serve God alone. We don't worship the United States of America. We worship God alone. And so God says through Joshua to us, get rid of anything else that's rivaling your following me alone. And then Joshua gives himself as an example. His most famous words, undoubtedly. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of us grew up with that on the wall of our parents' houses. Because that's a choice that every family, every person, every generation has to make. Who will we follow? And Joshua says, you guys can make your choice, but I've made mine. My family and I will serve God. And the people respond by saying, we'll follow your example. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord, it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. We're going to serve God. He redeemed us and who did all these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. He's blessed us. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. We're going to serve God, Joshua. That's what we're going to do. I mean, it's great. Every preacher would be thrilled to say, you know what? They got all three points. God redeemed, God preserved, God blessed. Therefore, we're going to do this. And most pastors would have said, Amen. Let's close in prayer. It's not what Joshua does. In fact, what he says is kind of startling. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. For he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Whoa. Wait a minute, Joshua. What what are you talking about? Certainly in part, he's saying, you can't do this on your own. And that's very true, isn't it? We can't serve God in our own strength. We need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God to do that. There may be, 
an element here of what he didn't hear them say. Because in all that they professed, they did not talk about putting away the other gods. But I think the real crux of what Joshua is saying in this verse is count the cost. Count the cost of following. Because God is not going to be served half-heartedly. God's character demands that we count the cost. He says, He is holy. You can't come to God on your own terms. You've got to come on His terms. You've got to surrender. He is jealous. That is, He will not allow rivals. It would be what, what Israel is doing and often does in their history would be a little like you and I on our wedding day saying to our spouse, you know, I love you and I'm committing to you, but I intend to see some other people on the side. If you said that, that should have ended the wedding before it took place. And God says, I'm not going to allow that in my people. You have to follow me alone, so you better count the cost before you say you're going to follow Then you get that phrase, he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Whenever you see something, you say, wait a minute. We need to compare scripture with scripture. To interpret, we need to know what the rest of the scripture says. And the scriptures clearly teach us that God does forgive. The the hallmark of the Old Testament is God's statement that he is the Lord long-suffering and forgiving sin and iniquity. John 1, 1 John 1 If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive. So what is Joshua saying? I think what he is saying is, don't think you can make this commitment lightly and just go off and live any way you please and assume that God will forgive you. In other words, you can't say, I'll just do this sin and God will forgive me. It doesn't work that way. One author has said, God insists on being God. I like that. He's not going to allow rivals. He's not going to allow us to walk away from him. And so, in fact, as we saw last week, he's faithful to discipline us. And Joshua says that again. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you having, after having done you good. So the fact that God has been gracious and good to you now does not mean that he will continue to be that way if you rebel against him. So count the cost of following. And when the people reassert their commitment, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord or chosen the Lord to serve him. In other words, okay, you've counted the cost. Understand your commitment. And they said, we are witnesses. And then he says, then put away the foreign gods. You didn't talk about that. Put away the other gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. I love that phrase, incline your heart. Literally, it means to pitch your tent on him. So Joshua is saying, you better make him where your foundation lies and him alone count the cost and follow him. He's the only foundation. Joshua is reminding us what we need to be reminded of. 
And that is salvation is simple, but it's not easy. Salvation is simple. Jesus died. He paid the the penalty for your sins and my sins. And if we give up trying to earn God's favor and trust in what Christ did alone, we can be saved. But Jesus also said, take up your cross and follow me. So it's simple. A child can do it. But we better count the cost and understand that it is not easy to follow Jesus. Joshua is about to send them off to their own inheritances. But before he does, he wants to remind them not only that they ought to be counting the cost of what they are doing and choosing to do, but they need to remember their choice to follow God. And so he does a few Old Testament kinds of things. He made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. What words? Can I suggest to you that he wrote the words of chapters 23 and 24 of Joshua? That here we get a glimpse into the fact that Joshua is the one who composes most of this book and it becomes part of the book of the law of God along with those first five books that Moses wrote. But he not only did that, he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth. Some of your Bibles may say the oak tree because there is a, a tree of some kind in Shechem. It was there back in Genesis. We meet it several times with Abraham and with his descendants and it's still there. And under that tree, he puts up a standing stone. We've seen a lot of those memorials in the book of Joshua. And he says, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. You know what he's saying? What I just said to you, not my words. They were God's words. And this stone, if it could hear, has heard what was said. And now it stands as a witness. Against you if you violate what was said. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your God. Remember. Pulling that into the New Testament. There is something that every one of us who are followers of Jesus have done or should do to mark that we're followers of Jesus. And it's right behind me. Baptism is a way of saying I am a follower, and this is a time, I hope you can remember the time when you stepped into the waters of baptism and made a public profession and commitment of your faith in Christ. But God's also provided another way, and once a month we celebrate that way as we gather at the Lord's table. And as we gather at his table, we're making a statement, I belong to God, but we're also participating in a way to remember the commitment that we have made to him. And so Joshua calls us to respond to God's great grace by surrendering our lives to him. It's a legend that is told, actually was turned into a song in the 60s by the Kingston Trio of a man who is wandering in the desert, dying for a lack of water, and he stumbles across an old ramshackle shack and immediately sees his eyes are drawn toward a hand pump in the yard and he runs to it and he begins to pump and nothing happens. And he begins to look around and he sees a a jug sitting nearby and he 
picks it up, and on that jug there's writing. And the writing said something like this, you have to prime the pump to get the water. Pour all of the water in this jug into the pump. And he uncorks the jug, and sure enough, there's water. It's stale, but it is water. It will enable him to live. But he has to make a choice. Will he surrender it into the pump, or will he hang on to it? After wrestling for a while, as you and I would have, he reluctantly poured it into the pump, and he began to pump again. And at first, there was just a squeaking of the pump, and then slowly a trickle of water, and then a gush of water. And he filled the jug, and he drank, and he filled it again, and he drank, and he filled it, and he put the cork back in it. And he wrote at the bottom of it, believe me, it really works. You have to give it all away. And that's what Joshua is calling for us to do. Surrender our lives. Surrender who we are to God for the flowing of and because of the flowing of his grace. So Joshua's last words at least the one last recorded words, end with a focus on God and a challenge to obey him. He points us to God's grace as Paul does in Ephesians 2 when he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to them. We are saved to surrender, to walk in the path that God has laid out for us to follow him. God's grace. We stand in awe of that grace, but it's not enough to stand in awe. We need to respond by obedience by surrendering our lives. Because the kingdom of God is not a constitutional monarchy like a King Charles, you know, it's kind of a figurehead. The kingdom of God is a sovereign dictatorship under a loving and gracious king who does demand from us surrender of our lives. So you can sum up what Joshua is saying in this sermon by saying a relationship with God is based solely on his grace. But that grace calls for exclusive obedience. And I thought it would be a great response for us to reflect in song on that grace. So would you stand and join me in this familiar song, just lifting our voices a cappella about the grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see, through many days.
toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He Father, we stand in your presence only by grace. We are blessed beyond measure only by grace. We have a certain future only by grace. So for those of us who are your children, help us to live in the light of that grace, standing in awe of it and kneeling in surrender because of it. And Lord, if there's anyone watching or here in the worship center that does not know you, may they surrender to grace. May they surrender to your love, to what you did through Christ even today. We pray in Jesus' name.